This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Molly Ball, the national political correspondent for Time Magazine and author of the best-selling book, Pelosi, about Speaker Nancy Pelosi, out this week in paperback. Also, I'll speculate if and when Speaker Pelosi will actually retire. And now, The Nexus. Molly Ball is the national political correspondent for Time, covering campaigns, the White House, political personalities, and policy debates across America. And she is the author of Pelosi, the best-selling biography of the most powerful woman in American history, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Molly Ball, welcome to The Nexus. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get to Pelosi, I wanted to ask you about some current political news, the infrastructure bill. What are you hearing about the timeline for development and what are the odds of it passing? Gosh, I uh, I, I have a firm policy of not making predictions uh, <laughs> as a reporter. Uh, but, you know, I think there you could you can see reasons for optimism and reasons for pessimism about this bill, right? Uh, on the one hand, uh, infrastructure is very popular and politicians know it's very popular and they like to do things that are popular. And there's a lot of uh, potential to, you know, stuff this bill with with goodies that everybody can go home and brag about. Uh, on the other hand, uh it appears that the way uh, Democrats are pursuing this makes it unlikely that they're going to get a lot of Republican support, which means there will be very little margin for our, for error. A lot will depend on the reconciliation process and the parliamentarian and all of that stuff. Uh, and uh, and it's a lot of money. And we are all we are seeing Republicans start to develop their critique of uh, you know just the general amount of spending and the specific spending in the bill. Uh, so uh, that's a, a, a clever way of saying I have no idea <laughs> what the chances are. And I, and I don't really know what the timeline is either. And I think that's one of the uh, one of the issues that this bill may have is there's not going to be the same sense of urgency around it that there was around COVID relief, which you know had to get done right away. It had the money for vaccinations. It had the deadline with the unemployment money. Uh, so it's so this bill could get bottled up for a while. Mm, that's true. I mean, is it accurate though that some have characterized the bill as only being six percent devoted to roads and bridges, meaning that there's a lot of pork in this bill? I have not done my own uh, analysis to be able to fact check that specific figure. I would say though uh, that it's it, 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 I, I do think it's unfair to say that only roads and bridges count as quote unquote infrastructure, right? Mm. Uh, there's a lot of things that you can build that are important and necessary uh, and things that government has has traditionally provided that aren't necessarily roads and bridges, whether you're talking about public transit infrastructure or uh, things like broadband or uh, other components of the bill. Uh, so, you know, pork is always in the mind, in, in the eye of the beholder. One, one man's pork project is another's uh, necessary project. Uh, so, uh, so I, I would, I obviously, 
uh, one line of attack that uh, opponents of the bill are developing is this idea that it isn't really an infrastructure bill because they know that infrastructure is popular. Uh, and that's fair as far as it goes. There is a lot of other stuff uh, that's going to be in this package. Uh, but uh, it, but I don't think it's fair to say that only roads and bridges count as infrastructure. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. Um, and it, it seems like, um, you know, as we we think about the power structure, and we're going to talk about Speaker Pelosi in a moment. After, though, we're now two and a half months into the Biden term. In your sourcing and your conversations with folks, how is President Biden doing? I mean, what's the perception of him on the Hill and in Washington at this point? Uh, so far, he seems to be riding pretty high. I think the success of the rescue plan, uh, both the fact that it passed uh largely intact, right? Very few compromises were made from what the administration originally proposed, which is pretty unusual, uh, especially given the, the incredible size of that package. And then just the fact that it didn't get beat up a whole lot politically along the way, right? If you compare it to uh, what seems like the logical comparison, the stimulus that uh, was passed at the very beginning of the first Obama term, uh, that was a bill that by the time it passed had been so effectively attacked by its opponents, by the Republicans who had decided to, to, to unanimously oppose it, uh, that it was very unpopular and it continued to be unpopular. And uh, the administration, I think it's fair to say, uh, failed to effectively sell it to the American people uh, and, and make them like it. Uh, so I think uh, people are pretty thrilled in the White House and in the Democratic caucus on the Hill that this bill has been so well received that people, uh, that the American public, according to all the polls, uh, seems to approve of it. Uh, and that's given the administration a lot of, I think, uh, credibility and enthusiasm, particularly from, from Democrats on the Hill. Now, Republicans uh, are, as we know, uh, divided and uh, squabbling and uh, in a bit of an identity crisis as a party right now. Uh, and I think there is a feeling uh, in the GOP that they whiffed a little bit, that they didn't uh, they didn't ever come up with a good way to uh, present their opposition to it uh, or argue against it. And, and that so and so therefore, it's, it's sort of partly their fault, right, that this bill is so popular because they never mounted an effective attack on it. Uh, so uh, but in terms of, you know, political capital, I think that this administration uh, has a lot of it on the Hill right now. Hmm. Excellent. Well, that's um, helpful. And I mean, when you think about uh Nancy Pelosi and how now she is finally once again in power with a Democratic administration. It's been a long time since she's been the speaker while there's been a Democratic president. How is she able to maintain her power after all these years? Uh, well, she uh, gets elected by the Democratic caucus at the beginning of every two-year uh, session of Congress is the short answer. <laughs> but, uh, but of course, as, as you know, and as I spend most of the book explaining, a lot goes into that. There's a lot of fascinating echoes uh, in Nancy Pelosi's two speakerships, right? The first one began in 2007 when George W. Bush was president and continued in 2009 when Barack Obama became president. Uh, and so it was a very 
very similar situation. She began as speaker leading uh, the Democrats on the Hill when the rest of Washington uh, was controlled by Republicans and they re- and she was up against a Republican president who was extremely unpopular. Uh, I, not the rest of Washington. I, the Democrats did have the Senate at that point, but uh, uh, and then and then she became the speaker during a Democratic administration uh, where Democrats had both houses of Congress. You look at today, and uh, she's just coming out of having been speaker, uh, where she sort of went toe to toe with a very unpopular uh, Republican president and was sort of the leader of the opposition, uh, and then. Her party won the presidential election and now has uh, serendipitously unified control of Congress as well. And so I think you can see a lot in her approach to her first speakership that tells you uh, how that sheds light on how she's approaching the second one. But in terms of your question, how she maintains her power, uh, there's the, the House of Representatives is just an incredibly complex place, right? 435 members, uh, 220-odd Democrats, and she has a personal relationship with every single one of those Democrats. Maybe not so much the Republicans, but, you know, I struggle to just recall the names or recognize individual members of Congress. There's so many of them, and they sort of come and go in Washington. But she not only, of course, knows their their names and their districts, but she knows their families. And if whatever's just happened in their lives, she's often the first to call when there's been, you know, a personal tragedy or or something happening in someone's life. She's always sending orchids to to congratulate people and and, and wish them well or offer sympathy. She not only knows every member, but she knows the composition of their district, the politics of their district, what issues they are personally interested in, which committees they're on, which committees they want to be on, which caucuses they're a part of, what other members they're feuding with or allied with, since there are these constantly shifting different blocks. Uh, So while we talk a lot about Congress in terms of the the, the policy priorities of the different members. What do progressives want out of this bill? What are the moderates looking for? Uh, it's those individual personal relationships that Nancy Pelosi has and her ability to make each one of those members uh, feel heard and, and listened to uh, that's really the key to her ability to continue to get elected as the leader of that caucus, even though uh, she has been at various points uh, dismally unpopular with with Americans overall and and is considered a quite polarizing figure. And I think until, uh, especially before the Trump administration, uh, a lot of Democrats saw her as a sort of political liability, but they but they keep her around because she's good at her job. She's extremely effective as a legislator, and she has those personal relationships with every member of the caucus. Hmm. And so, and you were obviously making references to your book, which is Pelosi. It is out in paperback right now. It's been in hardcover, a bestseller. Um, it's a thoroughly researched and reported book with some choice interviews with the speaker herself. What I find most interesting in your book is that for someone who was redefining how women are viewed in politics, she really came up through, for lack of a better word, the most masculine system I can think of, the bare knuckles Baltimore Democratic Party machine. I and mean, how, how did that shape her? 
That's such a good observation. Although I would point out that in the uh, 1940s and 50s, when she was growing up, there was no non-male dominated political establishment, <laughs> right? Even when she got to Congress in 1987, uh, there were just 23 women in the House out of 435. So it's not like there was some alternate old girls club she could have joined instead of joining the right. old club, right? Uh, but yes, so she grew up in a political family in Baltimore. Uh, her father was a congressman when she was born in 1940 and then became mayor when she was seven. She uh, swore him in. He took the, the oath of office uh, with his hand on, on a Bible that his only daughter was holding. Uh, she had five older brothers, so she grew up surrounded by boys uh, and uh, chafing a little bit at what she felt was the sort of overprotectiveness of, of the men in the family uh, for their one their one little precious uh princess uh but uh but that the 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 politics you're describing the very sort of stereotypically transactional machine politics of those sort of a big uh urban democratic uh white ethnic favor trading uh blocks that was very much uh, her her milieu. And I think she did take a lot of lessons from it. From the time she was pretty young, she was helping her, her mother and father administer what they called the favor file, which was this, uh, th this file that they kept in the living room of their row house in Baltimore's Little Italy, where when somebody needed something from the mayor, from the government, They'd, they'd go to his house and they'd say, you know, I need to get on welfare. I need to get into the city hospital. I need a job. I need help with this or that. Uh, and they, she would know who to call and, and help that person out. And then that favor would be saved for election time. And they'd go round up all of the votes they needed uh, in part from people who, who owed something to the mayor. So that transactional style of politics, knowing how to count votes and win votes based on number one, that's sort of street level grassroots organizing, uh, but number two, the understanding of the sort of shifting blocks and the different alliances and the favor trading to maintain it. I think you can definitely see that in her style of politics, but she combined it with, of course, a much more modern, uh, more ideological American liberalism that I think she drew, uh, especially from her uh, her admiration for John F. Kennedy. He, uh, she, she met uh, the future president when he was still a senator. Being a, a Catholic, he was especially, uh, he, he was an idol for so many American Catholics, including Nancy Pelosi, and she attended his inauguration and still talks to this day about how inspired she was by his, his soaring words at, on that, at that moment. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I don't want to give her father too much credit for her political style, just because I think she took that and then built on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one thing I always um, like almost as an aside is that she, um, her maiden name, I believe is Delisandro, right? And that's uh, correct. I, I actually always wondered if I, if my Uncle Pat Pasquale D'Alessandro was related to her in some way because that's not the most common Italian name, I would imagine. So I, I also I just wonder if her Italian heritage in any kind of way um, shaped her differently, or if if that was more of a just a she was just considered more of a general Catholic politician. 
No, no. I think she, I mean, she is extremely proud of her Italian American identity. And uh, as the, as the child of, you know, first and second generation immigrants, uh, it, it definitely forged her. She grew up in little Italy surrounded by uh, other Italian Americans. Uh, her father was the first Italian American mayor of Baltimore. So that meant a lot to them. They had, you know, they, he became important and, 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 and decently well off and could have left little Italy. Uh, but, he, but uh, he, the family never did because uh, they felt that that, was their home and uh, and little Italy's still there today. You can go there and uh, eat pasta or, or or get a pastry uh, from from one of those restaurants that have been there forever, as I did uh, when I went there with Nancy Pelosi to to interview her. Uh, so um, so yeah, she and 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 you know one of the the, the things that uh, people may know about Nancy Pelosi is she has just incredible uh, personal stamina. She uh, never seems to eat or sleep. Uh, she is constantly working. She doesn't drink caffeine or alcohol. Uh, and uh, a lot of people are constantly asking, you know, she's on planes all the time. She's traveling constantly, fundraising constantly, meeting with people constantly. She seems to show up to things constantly, whether it's, you know, so someone's celebration in DC or uh, a funeral across the country that nobody expected her to be at. Uh, and, and when you ask her how she does it, she just with a completely straight face, she says, well, I'm Italian. We have great stamina. <laughs> so not only does she take great pride in, in that, but she firmly believes that it's her Italian genes uh, that, that give her those uh, personal attributes. Yeah, well, I, it's true. I, I know mother m members of my mother's family have always looked to her as an icon. So I can I can totally see that. But one thing I wanted to ask you, would you... What would you consider to be Nancy Pelosi's greatest legislative accomplishment? Well, I know what her answer to that question is because I've asked her and it's the Affordable Care Act. Right. Uh, when you ask her, as I have, what, what she would like her legacy to be, that is what she says. Uh, she was instrumental uh, to the passage of the Affordable Care Act. I have a, a very long chapter in the book about uh, that whole drama uh, from 2009-2010. But, you know, when you put that in perspective, the Democratic politicians had been trying for about nearly a hundred years to enact some form of uh, universal uh, entitlement to access to healthcare. Uh, and they'd failed repeatedly, uh, most notoriously perhaps uh, in, the, in the Clinton administration when, when so-called Hillary care fell apart. Uh, and, and this was the chance to do it and it barely made it over the line and took a lot of hits and was possibly responsible for a lot of uh, political damage to Pelosi and her party. Uh, but she's tremendously proud that they got it done, that the accomplishment has endured, that Republicans never did manage uh, to repeal it, despite many, many, many efforts to and promises to do so. Uh, and now I, she believes, and many Democrats believe, they're poised to, to build on that and expand it, uh, including in the rescue plan, right? There's a, there's a lot of uh, Obamacare related related stuff in there. Uh, and so, so that's, uh, so she's also, of course, been 
uh, a part of other important uh, democratic accomplishments. But, you know, in, in her early years, I write a lot about how she uh, did a lot on uh, gay rights and, and the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was very active, especially in her early career on human rights in China. In the Obama years, she was integral to all of the uh, signal pieces of legislation of that era, financial regulation, uh, women's uh, anti-discrimination, all and, and, and a fair amount of other bills that uh, passed the House but couldn't get through the Senate, including uh, the cap and trade bill that uh, remains the only major climate bill ever to pass a House of Congress. Uh, so, so those I think are are the accomplishments that she would look at, and then of course the 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 current efforts, the the the, the rescue plan, the COVID relief uh, legislation uh, from the past year, those trillions of dollars in federal spending affecting every part of of policy and of American life. I think those uh, she would also consider pretty big accomplishments. Right. Absolutely. Well, I mean, on a Another topic, though, would you did Nancy Pelosi handle either of the impeachments of Donald Trump? Well, I mean, it seems like the first one may have been incomplete by many people's standards. And the second one was either too rushed, some said, or actually took too long to get to the floor. What what do you think about that? Well, I don't think you can say it took too long to get to the floor in the House, Uh, maybe in the Senate, but in the House, it literally took a day. Uh, You know, Nancy Pelosi resisted impeaching Donald Trump for a long time. Uh, We've largely forgotten that now, but when she took up that gavel for the second time in 2019, there was already um, a large amount of pressure within the Democratic caucus to begin impeachment based on the Mueller investigation, various corruption allegations, and a lot of other stuff. And uh, she stiff-armed them for months and months, and it was getting to the point where it was causing a lot of internal acrimony among Democrats uh, when, of course, the the Ukraine scandal came along and and changed her thinking as well as many other Democrats. Uh, But I think she, you know, if there's one of the major themes of this, of the book is Nancy Pelosi's fixation on tangible results. Mm. She's not particularly interested in making herself or anybody else look good or feel good or or uh, or, or do things that that are merely uh, cosmetic. So uh, she you know she wants to pass legislation that, in her view, improves people's lives. And so from the very start, I think she viewed impeachment as something that was likely to be divisive and pointless, essentially. She she lived through the Nixon impeachment uh, when she was younger, before she was an elected official. She lived through the Clinton impeachment when she was in Congress, which she viewed, the word she uses uh, to this day, she viewed it as a joke. Uh, And then when she was first speaker, there was a lot of pressure on the left to impeach George W. Bush over the Iraq war. She had code pink protests protesters camped out in her yard in San Francisco for weeks and and Cindy Sheehan moved to the district just to to run against her in a primary because so many liberals were so angry at her for not impeaching George W. Bush, but she held firm to that. So so she was informed by all those experiences when it came to this drive to impeach Trump. Uh, She finally came to the point where both 
you know, her caucus was pretty unanimously behind it. And she also had come to the point where she believed it was necessary on the merits that, that at this, that, that knowing what they did at that time, uh, the, the, the constitution just required them to proceed with it. But she did uh, seek to make it as, as short and limited as possible. Uh, and, uh, and, and some have, uh, critiqued her for that. I think had they decided to go long and throw the kitchen sink at Trump and do, you know, a, a, an impeachment that stretched over six months and touched everything that anyone had ever accused him of, I think there would probably have been a lot of criticism of that too. So mm. she and a lot of people around her believed that that first impeachment was handled about as well as it could have, given that there was never any hope of removing Trump from office. Uh, and therefore, the best they could hope for was to present the case to the American people and not suffer too much politically themselves, meaning the Democrats, uh, since Republicans were convinced this was something that, like the Clinton impeachment, backfired on the Republicans. They thought this the Trump impeachment would backfire on the Democrats, and uh, it doesn't seem to have had, had that effect. And of course, it was such an eventful year in 2020. There was so much else eclipsed it. And that second impeachment, I think, similarly, she viewed as something that had to be done. Uh, but Trump was already leaving office. Uh, and uh, it was sort of up to the Senate whether they could uh, get far enough to prevent him uh, from running again. But in terms of tangible result, there there just wasn't going to be one. And there's so much else that uh, that she wanted to embark on. So, you know, it was, it was one and done in the House. Uh, and then the Senate took a little bit longer. But uh, in retrospect, I don't think she has any regrets about that. Mm. Now, I know you don't like to make predictions, so I'm going to try to steer this idea away from that. But it's obvious that the House majority, the Democratic House majority has gotten precipitously small uh, is is there a contingency plan i mean what is what is someone like nancy pelosi doing i'm sure she's doing things now to try to shore up the majority so that they maintain power in 2022 what could you mention about that of course. I mean, she is all she always has her eye on uh, the next election. She always has her eye on trying to protect her members as well as her own position. She is widely expected to retire after this term. And although she hasn't elaborated on that very much and does not like to discuss it, doesn't like to be asked about it. She has she previously did pledge to abide by a self-imposed term limit uh, that would expire at the end of this current term as speaker. Uh, and so uh, she she is thought to be planning to move on. Um, but she hasn't really anointed a successor. And that's been a persistent critique of her, uh, including from her fellow Democrats that there and, and it's an unusual situation as well, because not only has she been the Democratic leader uh, for 15 years now, but so, but her two lieutenants have been by her side that whole time as well, Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn, and they are all uh, around 80 years old. Uh, she actually just turned 81. Uh, so most Democrats expect that they will that, that 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 trio will all move on at once, 
And that's going to open an enormous power vacuum, whether or not Democrats retain the majority. So, you know, if you're asking, will Democrats keep the majority in 2022? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. History suggests it's an extremely uh, uphill battle for them. Uh, The odds are not very good, but uh, uh, anything can happen. And uh, she is certainly very involved in raising the money and, uh, working on the strategy of the Democratic Campaign Committee and recruiting candidates and so on. Uh, But if you're asking, you know, what is the fate of the Democratic caucus after Nancy Pelosi uh, rides away into the sunset, you know, there's it it is a major source of uh, gossip and intrigue among House Democrats at the moment. Uh, And uh, when she's been criticized for not having a clear succession plan, uh, she, well, when I asked her about it, she said, well, I did have one. It was Chris Van Hollen and he went and ran for the Senate instead. But part of the reason that Chris Van Hollen went and ran for Senate was because she wouldn't give him any assurances that she, that she would uh, give him a path to the to the speakership, that she had some plan uh, to move on so that he could move up. And a lot of talented uh, junior Democrats in the House have moved on uh, to different uh, political careers because there has been so little upward mobility because of the long uh, serving of those those three top Democrats in the caucus. Uh, so, but, you know, when Nancy Pelosi first was elected to leadership when she won that whip election against Sidney Hoyer in a very hard fought contest in 2001. Uh, she was really up against the, the male dominated democratic establishment. She was not the next person in line. She was not the one who was anointed for the position and she had to fight for it. And so she believes that the way the next person in that position will prove that they deserve it is by fighting for it, is Mm. by rounding up the support themselves among their colleagues, proving that they have the chops, proving that they know the policy, they know the politics, they know the House and its procedures, they they, uh, have the ability to do the job. Uh, And so one of the the quips she's been known to to say is, uh, when she's asked, you know, about passing the baton is, well, everybody's got a baton in their handbag, and it's up to them to take it out. So she... So I do think that there is a part of her uh, refusal to name a successor uh, that that comes from that conviction uh, that it's not her job, it's their job uh, to prove that they deserve to be in that place. And then, of course, there's an aspect of self-protection. I think it's undeniable that had she clearly... shown that that she had she clearly anointed someone as a successor that person would then have become a threat to her and she wouldn't have wanted that i mean is it possible i know she made the pledge but i've got to think lots of people may believe that she will try to hold on anyway post 2022 is that even possible I wouldn't put it past her. And if she wanted to do it, there's probably a way to do it. Uh, It's an informal self-imposed term limit. It was never written into the democratic rules. Uh, So if she uh, wanted to find a way around it, I am sure that she could. Uh, But she did indicate recently that she plans to abide by it. So we'll see. And I mean, we see a lot in the media about or we used to, maybe not so much lately, but certainly when the members of the so-called squad came into Congress, there seemed to be almost a media-created rivalry between these young women and Nancy Pelosi. What is the status of that so-called rivalry now? And have there's 
is there a happy medium that's been achieved or is there still tension or was there never tension to begin with? Well, so I think uh, there was never the amount of sort of personal tension that I think was, as you as you alluded to, sometimes framed in these sort of sexist, you know, catfight terms, right? Exactly. That that if they're the, the these powerful women were sort of jealous of each other or whatever. I don't think it was personal in that in that sense. But there has certainly been political uh, tension, and uh, there was a lot of drama, particularly in 2019, uh, when you know Pelosi made some dismissive comments about AOC and the so-called squad, and that uh, hurt people's feelings and caused a lot of. Uh, acrimony uh, among the Democrats. Uh, but, you know, a parallel that often gets drawn is between the, the Republicans' Freedom Caucus and their, their hard right uh, and the Democrats' uh, so-called squad. Uh, and there's a few interesting differences there. Uh, number one, unlike on the Republican side, the far-left Democrats' principal antagonists are not their own party, right? A lot of those right-wing Republicans are madder at their own leaders or have been in the past, have been madder at their own leaders, madder at the people they view as the squishes and sellouts in the Republican party uh, than they are at the Democrats. Uh, the so-called squad members have now voted for Pelosi to be speaker twice, uh, recognizing that uh, the alternative to her is likely to be less liberal, not more so, uh, and and having a sort of pragmatic sense of, of, of what is the best vehicle uh, to achieve the things that they want. Now, I think they're going to be uh, agitating uh, for more. There is a feeling um, for uh, on the progressive side that they should have driven a harder bargain in the rescue plan and that they want to do so going forward. Uh, and so they may continue to be a thorn in, in her side. But the other difference with the Republicans and something that uh, Pelosi sometimes mentioned derisively in the past is that the squad is only a few members. Yeah. Originally just four. Now you can say maybe it's, you know, seven or eight. It's not a formal caucus. It's not a group that, you know, meets and strategizes and and, and has, has its own branding. It's, it's a, it's a, name that's largely been assigned to them and which various members have sort of tried to, to disavow. They don't want to be seen as a splinter group of the Democratic Party. Uh, the larger Congressional Progressive Caucus, which includes most of the, the majority of the Democratic members, Pelosi is, is a member of in good standing. And some of them grumble that she sort of uses them to triangulate, right? She'll stand up in caucus meetings and say, they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, calling me a San Francisco liberal and I'm proud of it. And it gives her the credibility to, 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 to say to the progressives, you're not going to get what you want. I've gotten all I can get for you, but we have to you know, come meet in the middle with our, our, our moderate members to get whatever it is done. Uh, so, but, uh, but you know, unlike the Republicans, which have uh, dozens of members who are in, uh, whether it's the Tea Party or the Freedom Caucus, whatever iteration, and, uh, and who have actively sought to make life difficult for their own leadership, particularly John Boehner and Paul Ryan, uh, Pelosi's never had that type of internal antagonism. Mm. So I've got to ask, what in writing this book, though, what is the thing that surprised you about Nancy Pelosi the most? You know, 
there's so much that I've learned uh, and and uh, a lot that I didn't know. Uh, but I think more than anything, it's her her boldness, her aggressiveness. I think she's often seen as a sort of cautious and calculating figure. Uh, and she certainly isn't someone who, who, who does things on a whim, uh, but she's an incredibly aggressive person. You know, her toughness is legendary, whether it was standing up to Trump or various other situations where she sort of showed how, how steely she was and how willing to stand up to people. But a lot of people don't know that in uh, 1991, two years after the Tiananmen Square massacre, she went on a congressional delegation to China and she and a couple of other members uh, escaped their their Chinese government handlers, pretended they were too tired to take a tour of the Great Wall, and instead uh, snuck into Tiananmen Square and unfurled a, a banner, an activist banner, and they were chased out on camera by uh, Chinese military police from the square and caused a big international incident. So she's never been afraid to get in people's faces. She's never been afraid to, uh, to, to, to stand up for, for what she believed in, even when she had to take a lot of heat for it. You know, she was against the Iraq war from the start. She was the top Democrat on the intelligence committee at the time, but she was not the Democratic leader. Uh, and the Democratic leader at the time, Dick Gebhardt, was in favor of uh, authorizing uh, Bush to, to go to war, as were a lot of other top Democrats, including, you know, Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, and so on. Uh, and she whipped the, the Democratic House caucus against its own leadership, uh, convincing her fellow members to vote against that authorization. Uh, and with the result that the majority of House Democrats did vote against the war authorization, unlike the Democrats in the Senate. And I think a lot of uh, Democrats would look back on that and a lot of, even a lot of non-Democrats and say that, uh, that that she was right on that, that when she critiqued, uh, you know, at the time, uh, a lot of top Democrats were very anxious about having this, this outspoken San Francisco liberal uh, talking about how terrible the an idea of the war was at a time of you know national solidarity and uh, and uh, in some people's minds a sort of a sort of jingoistic rush to war uh, so you know it was viewed as sort of politically inconvenient to have her out there saying these things but in retrospect I think a lot of Democrats think that uh, maybe they should have listened <laughs> Okay, so my last question, and this is really cool. You won $100,000 on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. <laughs> Could you tell me about that? Was this the primetime Regis version or the syndicated Meredith Vieira show? What, what happened there? Uh, yes, thank you for asking. I always put that in my bio because it's such a good conversation piece. Uh, this is back in uh, 2007 when I was a, a rookie political reporter for the Las Vegas uh, Review Journal. And um, I found out that Millionaire was holding auditions in Vegas. So I went and I tried out and the way it worked. This is the, the Meredith Vieira iteration of the show, which uh -huh. I was a big fan of. I used to watch every night. Mm -hmm. And uh and so they would send you a postcard that said, you know, three weeks from today, you show up in New York City, pay your own way, uh, and, uh, and and you get to be on the show. So I was on uh, two back-to-back -back episodes and uh, did surprisingly well, as you mentioned. It was the way I was able to pay off my student loans. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, so I, what I remember is that uh, 
the the hundred thousand dollar question I got right by using my phone a friend, and so I'll ask you if you know it. Is gravity on the moon is what fraction of gravity on Earth? Is it one half, one fourth, one eighth, or one sixth? Oh my! Oh geez. Um, well, I would definitely need some some help on that, but I'm, I'm going to make a a wild guess and say it's an eighth. I didn't know it either, but it is one sixth. Oh. And fortunately, my my friend Jason uh, knew when I called him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the so the two hundred fifty thousand dollar question uh, was uh, a character in the Harry Potter books. Dumbledore is an archaic word meaning what? I don't remember exactly what all the options were, but uh, I had, at that time I had used up all my lifelines. Even if I were a Harry Potter fan, which I'm not, I wouldn't have necessarily known the the answer. Right? The book never explains to you how Dumbledore got his name. Uh, so I looked at the options. I knew I didn't know it. I thought I had a guess, but I wasn't gonna. Uh, I, you know, if I if I hadn't if I'd gotten it wrong, I would have gone down to what like twenty five or fifty thousand. Uh, so uh, despite the fact that I lived in Las Vegas at the time, I'm not much of a gambler. Uh, so I, I uh, declined to answer that one. Do you happen to know? I do not. No, I, I am not a Harry Potter aficionado, but I would love to know the answer just so our listeners could play along. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, and, and as an English major, as a word person, as a writer, I was, I was very annoyed to, to lose on a vocabulary question. Uh, but the answer is Bumblebee. Oh, God, that seems so easy when you think about it. Yeah, it's yeah. But the other choices were like wardrobe, sofa, raincoat, things like that. Things that you would think that sound kind of old fashioned, you know. So oh, that, that was the answer. That is that is something. And it's and not to pry, but do they? I've always wondered this about game shows. Do they actually just send you a big check, or do you get like in installments? How does that even work? I can't speak for other game shows or even for, you know, what Millionaire is up to now. Uh, but the way it worked for me was, you know, the show was taped in the fall and did not air until uh, the, the I want to say January or February. So you're not allowed to talk about it. And if they, and if, uh, you know, you spoil the show, you might not get your check. No. You don't get the check until it airs. Uh, and then when it airs, they do just send you one big check. Uh, but you do have to pay taxes on it. You have to pay taxes I, yeah. in. Uh, you have to pay New York state and city taxes because it's earned income in New York. Oh, jeez. Well, that is that's, that's, we jumped out of it. Not that I'm complaining. <laughs> we've had a game show host on my show a few months ago. Now our first game show winner quiz show. I don't know if you'd call it a game show or a quiz show, but it's. Uh, but that is incredible. I am. It's it's great to hear that that enhancement to. <laughs> You're already stellar career. So this is, uh, it's just one other feather in your cap, but I'd like to mention that uh, Pelosi by Molly Ball is her new book. It is a national bestseller. It's now out in paperback. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, iBooks, Audible, and everywhere good books are sold. Get yourself a copy. And as a Time Magazine subscriber since the 1980s, I'll be continuing to read your work in Time Magazine. So, Molly Ball, thank you for joining me in the Nexus. Thank you for having me. And we will be right back. I realize we just had an election and many of us are still recovering from the intensity of 2020, but after reading Molly Ball's book and speaking to her on the Nexus, the hottest race to be following moving forward 
is the quest to succeed, Madam Speaker. Nancy Pelosi says she would only be Speaker for two terms or four years total when she was ushered back into the Speakership in 2018. As I touched upon in the interview, I'm not sure I believe that is going to happen. Think of it this way. Pelosi waited eight long years after losing the Speaker's gavel before reclaiming it. From 2011 to 2019, she had to contend with John Boehner and Paul Ryan, pretenders to the throne, wielding power. How humbling it had to be that after four short years, when she had achieved her dream of becoming Speaker and became the most powerful woman in American history, that she had to relinquish that power. But then, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, she rode back into town on that white horse and became Speaker again. Even though, you know, she never technically left Washington and it's unknown whether she knows how to ride a horse, the metaphor still stands. Nancy Pelosi spent most of her 70s plotting to get the speakership back, so it's hard to believe she will leave willingly. Even if she's 82 years old and has been around forever, President Biden just announced in his first White House press conference that he intends to run for re-election, and if he does so and wins, he'd be 82 in January 2025. The geriatric caucus isn't giving up so easily, and my money will be on Nancy trying to stay on. I say trying because her grasp on the Speaker's office is precipitously loose. Democrats only hold a seven-seat majority in the House with six seats vacant. And midterms are traditionally bad for the party that is holding the White House. Molly Ball may have said the president is riding high as of now, and he could very well continue to do so in November of 22. But man, that is too close for comfort a majority for Democrats. If the Democrats lose the House, I can't see Pelosi surviving that, even if she wants to be the minority caucus leader. You can only mount so many comebacks and trying one in your 80s is probably a bridge too far. So who might be the next leader of the Democratic caucus? Well, there's already Democratic caucus chair Hakeem Jeffries. There's former Black caucus chair Karen Bass, who you may remember was a finalist in the Veep stakes that Kamala Harris wound up winning. And there's House Intelligence Chair Adam Schiff, who became one of President Trump's chief antagonists. Beyond those three, Assistant Speaker Catherine Clark, Vice Chair Pete Aguilar, and Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal are possibilities. If you haven't heard of any of them, there's a reason for that, as Molly talked about. The octogenarian triumphant of Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn have done their darndest to make sure no one overtakes them. And therefore, it's comical how no one is being groomed to take over. There's even talk that if the Democrats lose and Pelosi exits, that Steny Hoyer may try to be the leader as a sort of bridge to tomorrow. I could see that happening. It's one thing I've learned in the last several years is that the shift to fresh, young, and inexperienced was but a passing fad. The Barack Obamas and Paul Ryans of the world have given way to Biden, Trump, Pelosi, Hoyer, Clyburn, Schumer. I mean, does this list ever end? I guess it's a triumph of medical science that 80 is the new 60. When I was growing up, you, you were ancient if you even lived to 80. Now, you haven't lived if you don't make it to 90, at least. Think about Queen Elizabeth, who turns 95 in two weeks. 
While she's been living and ruling, her boyish in comparison 72-year-old son has been shut out of power, just like a generation of Democrats in America. Stay healthy, I suppose, and you too can stay in power. You just have to get the power first. That's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. Check out my new newsletter, also titled The Nexus, at artswift.substack.com. That's artswift.substack.com. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time and be well. Be well.